Good morning. This is the speaker you've been waiting for. <laughs> it's great to see you. I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm a member of the uh, primary purpose group in Southern Pines, North Carolina. And uh, my sobriety date was Groundhog Day of 1957. And uh, if you guys can just sort of pull me through one more day, that'll that'll be 41 years in this thing. And I believe you can do that for me. I hope so. Uh, that's uh, that's uh. If you live long enough, it's amazing how the wheel turns. When I was, I seen about this morning, thinking about that, that uh, when I came in, I, I was in, I was in a, about the the, the youngest two percent of the program. Every meeting I attended for several years, I was the youngest guy in the crowd, and uh, now it's exactly the opposite. I'm. <laughs> I'm the oldest super set, and I'm usually the oldest rat in the barn. And uh, it ain't bad. I'd rather be there than not in the barn. But it's an awkward feeling sometimes. Uh, I was in a conference down in Louisiana last year. First time it's happened in the last 25 years, I think. I was the youngest speaker on the program in in age and sobriety. I had more fun. They called me the rookie all weekend. <laughs> I never carried so much coffee in my life to that crowd. <laughs> so, so things change. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. <laughs> I'm really delighted to be here. And, uh, and I, w- I want to congratulate those of you who were either rambunctious enough or frisky enough or mad enough or whatever it took to get this thing going, because I guarantee you they don't have them by themselves. You know that. And so I really appreciate those of you who were willing to step outside the comfort zone and do something that would make a real contribution to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati. And so here we sit on a beautiful Sunday morning. I was out walking around a little bit this morning just kind of loosening up a little bit, and and uh, I was just thinking that, you know, here we are, a bunch of folks, uh, alcoholics and, and folks emotionally hooked to us, gathered together on a beautiful Sunday morning in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and we come together to do a lot of things. One is to share experience, strength, and hope. I really think what it comes down to is that we just sort of bunch up and love one another a bit, and... Uh, it's been great to watch that this weekend, and uh, one good thing about being on Sunday morning is that you do get a chance somewhat to uh, relax a bit and just kind of enjoy stuff and observe what's happening. That's a good deal. I really appreciate you you're doing doing this and letting me be a part of it. Really appreciate being on the program with uh, all the speakers this weekend are friends of mine. And that's the other thing happens when you get old that your your circle of friends grows and the circle of family really. Kind of growth. This weekend was was special in that sense that they are all folks that I know and and uh, and care about. Really glad that uh, that uh, that this conference brought old old Jim out of uh, uh, a, a sort of a 
a mandatory isolation there for a while, a little pull back from uh, from the the flurry of activity in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's really great to be with him. And uh, I guess to not only see him do what he does like nobody else one more time, but also to uh, watch him adjust to some newly imposed limitations. And, uh, yeah, we don't know exactly how that's going to work out. Uh, none of us do. But it was really great to be here and to know that uh, he was able to do that, as he described it last night, in a crowd whom he loved and who loved him very much. Great place. So no matter what adjustment... Uh, <clears throat> my buddy has to make, uh, we'll understand that, and we'll support uh, whatever it is. Now, selfishly, I want him to be at every meeting I attend, because God only knows how many rooms he's lit up with that inimitable quality of, of having pure, unadulterated fun with a big league, serious purpose. So, good weekend, and I, I really appreciate being here. And I, I'm supposed to talk about drinking and puking and stuff. <laughs> I'm like my buddy Jimmy from Friday night. I, I'm, I'm a great lover of drunker locks. I, I love drunk locks, especially mine. I, I just, I can just wall around in that sucker all, all, all morning. And not get enough. <laughs> I think they serve great purpose, too. I don't ever want to get too far away from mine, but I don't want to live in it either. Because there is more to the story in there. there our stories disclose generally what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And what I was like is a valuable part of that. But it's also important what happened. You know, what was it that took a, a hopeless alcoholic in a, in a literal death spiral and gave him a hold on something sufficient to introduce a brand new way of life that's lasted one day short of 41 years. That's a, that's a story, isn't it? And then what that process of recovery is about. By the way, I want to introduce a fellow. I think uh, maybe the first meeting, Clark and Darlene drafted him. He was vacillating between the restaurant and the bar. And... uh <laughs> I don't know if they were rescuing him or just inviting him in to see what we do. But I want you to meet the, meet a fellow by the name of Randy Hazel, I believe, who's from a place called Fredericton, Fredericton, New Brunswick, up in the Maritimes of Canada. And he's sitting in with us this morning. And uh, I'd just like you to know he's here. Randy, stand up. Uh, Randy Hazel. He's got It's also my duty to report he's wearing somebody else's badge now. He got <laughs> I believe it's Darlene's. I don't think he'll pull it off. <laughs> it's good to have you, Randy. This is what we do. We tell our stories and, and, uh, and, and the stuff that's happened to us. Yeah, I was, I was kind of intrigued about the, uh, the slogan. I was also intrigued about this sign that Dan did, uh, and I'm told that he did that house, the house in one hour. He painted that sucker in one hour. That's just amazing to me that guy could quit shaking this soon, much less be able to, <laughs> able to do that. 
And every time I've looked at that thing, I've been intrigued with the theme. And also, every time I look at that house, I, you remember the theme from the monsters? <laughs> That's gone through my head every time I've looked at that house. <laughs> but... And that thing, I've never heard that thing before, but it's a, it's a, it's a good one because it fits an awful lot of stuff sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. It, it, in a way, it describes alcoholism. Yeah, that, that we seem to come in two basic types. One is the type who starts drinking and drinks with what the book calls relative impunity for a long, long time. And then one day they just go off the end of the pier and don't get back up. That's an alcoholic. You know, the old bourbon-swilling uh, uh, alcoholic that just sort of, that's all it did, it did, it just did it a long time, and then something happened. Either the strainer broke or something. I don't know what. But something happens. That's an alcoholic. That's a real alcoholic. I don't have any question about it. There's another type. That's sometimes slowly. You know, alcoholism happens sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. There are others of us who just seem to be Going to hell in a handbasket day one. I, I mean, I mean, we're just born disaster areas that, that screwed up royally before we ever took a drink and, 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 and the booze was just sort of like instant coffee. You know, it just looked like alcoholism happened all at once. And, uh, now I was the, I'm the latter, not the former. I, I was one of those who, uh, today I'm thankful for it that, um, you know, I was blessed with my alcoholism as a young guy. Uh, and it seemed like it happened all at once. I thought when I first started drinking, I must have been born alcoholic because I got drunk the first time I ever seriously drank and got drunk every time I seriously drank or wanted to. I don't remember a single time in my life I've had a drink with a sense of adequacy. Not one single time in my life. Yeah, I've been so full of booze it was running out my nose. And somebody say, don't you think you've had enough? And mine would be the standard response, just one more. Been so drunk, couldn't lay on the floor. Man, couldn't wiggle. Couldn't bat my eyes. Don't you think you've had enough? Just one more. I've never had the feeling of sufficiency that that's enough. Yeah. I've always admired, it's the most suave looking thing I've ever seen in my life. Somebody poured, you know how they pour the wine in a restaurant and say, more wine, sir, and some cat put his hand over the glass. No thanks. <laughs> God! I, say, I am always amazed at that. I, I think, Jesus, what's wrong with you people? That's crazy. <laughs> I have never done that in my life. I mean, I can't even do that with a straight face sober. I, <laughs> I put more in there if I ain't going to drink it. I, <laughs> I've heard some folks say they turned the drink. I've never turned a drink down in my life till I got sober. That I recall. I promise you, if I turned one down, I didn't understand what they said. Ain't no way. I was the kind of guy who would walk across the city of Cincinnati on the rumor of a drink. <laughs> you had to be there. <laughs> it ain't my kind of alcoholic that don't want one if that's all he can get. My God, man, what kind of pessimist is that? There's always something ahead. <laughs> so, that's the kind I was. I mean, I, I don't think I was a born alcoholic. It probably it may be such a thing. I don't know. Don't care, really. 
I'm not, I don't think I was born, I don't really think I was an instant alcoholic. Yeah, I think what it was for, it's really interesting to me that when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was here about two years before I ever heard one single speaker that I identified with. I mean one. Every one of them was radically different from me. Now, I never hear one that I don't identify with. We're making a better grade of drunk these days, I think. Uh, it was a, it was, it, it was, it was just a gap for me. I, I, but what I find now is that the experience may not be the same in terms of the events and circumstances and all that. But I rarely hear, never hear an alcoholic and rarely hear an Al-Anon that I don't identify with because we define the two sides of the puzzle. You know, they, we define the two pieces that fit. And so, I won't go into all of what it is, but all of that stuff that I hear every single speaker this weekend and every meeting I attend, that thing of feeling isolated, separated, and all that kind of thing, for whatever reason, whether it's superior, inferior, different, color, whatever, doesn't make any difference, whatever it is that makes me feel isolated, I identify that with every speaker I ever hear. Now, I'll tell you something about about that, I think it's very central to my alcoholism. My self-centered isolation had nothing to do with booze. Nothing. I was self-centered and isolated before I ever had a drink. It had nothing to do with booze. That was the condition that, that, that made booze so magical and so important for me because what happened to me when I started serious drinking at 16 was that that stuff just did something important for me. I was a miserable guy. I didn't like who I was, where I was. didn't like the people I lived with. didn't like anything about my life. I was miserably uncomfortable with the business of living. I found booze, and it fixed that. And so when I started to, to, to drink, what booze posed for me was an absolutely magical solution. Magical solution. It's the most effective, quickest, cheapest, most readily available solution I've ever found for my problems. Beat the devil out of psychiatry. I would, I would have been stupid not to drink. Man, I could get a two dollar quart of my, of moonshine and I could fix anything. I, I mean, it would have been dumb not to drink. And so that's what happened to me. I just found something here, worked awfully well, loved it, and I took to it, I mean, with a purple passion. I loved everything about it. I think one thing I like about Alcoholics Anonymous is that the same crowd that, that lit up my life drinking is sitting here this morning. Same bunch. We're just in a different condition. And so that's what happened to me. I found a solution. I was like a prisoner freed, like a bird out of a cage, and I just absolutely took off. And, and, and I'll tell you, if I had found a way, if that had been able, something I'd have been able to maintain, that's where your speaker would be this morning. I'm not here on moral grounds. I'm not here recruiting for the WCTU. I'm kind of fond of booze. If, uh, if, if folks ever ask me for a drink, they better mean it. Because if I give somebody a drink, it's a drink. I mean, I've got a definition of what a drink is. And, and I don't feel bad about that because you, know, you think about it, that's where our membership comes from. So I always look at my pouring heavy drinks as sort of my own recruiting program. <laughs> They're on the fence. I might as well just kick them on over, you know, get over with the stuff, get on in here. So, <clears throat> so, 
what on earth did that have to do with anything? That guy. <laughs> well, anyway, that 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 was just just the way I was. I just sort of lit up in that thing, and and that's where I would be today. Except I was one for whom alcoholism was in the cards. I don't know why, whether it was heredity or genes or or, or chromosomes or whatever. I don't know what it was. But for some reason, I was one who was set up so that I was not going to be able to continue that deal because I developed alcoholism. We refer to this as crossing a line. We refer to that somewhat as crossing a line. Our book describes it, in fact, I think defines it very clearly of what happened to me that changed the course of my life and was a major, major turning point in terms of what happened in my drinking career. The defining point. Now, I don't know when it happened exactly. That's somewhere in my 18th year. I drunk for a, for a couple of years, and I drunk heavily for a couple of years. I had all of the the normal problems associated with, 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 with drinking as much as I did. I went to jail a lot, got my nose broke, woke up in a lot of strange places, threw up a lot of mighty good booze. I, I did all the stuff drunks normally do. But there was a difference. I was basically somebody who just loved booze, and I was a one-night stand artist. But when I was 18 years old, something happened that was to change that indelibly for the rest of my life. And and the way the book talks about it, what we call crossing the line, it's my favorite place in the book. I never talk without talking about this because it really does define the point. In the third chapter... More about alcoholism. Third paragraph. I don't have to read it. It's the only thing in the book that I can quote accurately. I, 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 I know it's right, I think. It, 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 it's fundamental to who I am and what I'm about. It says, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. To me, that gets exactly to the heart of the matter. I'm somebody, I'm a man who lost the ability to control his drinking. And that's the heart of the matter. I really like that. That was especially valuable to me when I was one of the youngest guys around. When I was the youngest member in the state of North Carolina. It was awfully important to me to understand that that what constituted alcoholism was not how long I drank. Or what I drank. You know, I drank everything from champagne to hydraulic brake fluid. But... <laughs> Preferred champagne. I didn't mean to drink the, the brake wood as some Yankee bootlegger sold me that stuff. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it worked, brother. It, it locked me up tighter than a drum. And I never went back. I, I learned that lesson. I never became something I'd seek out. But I drank it all. That doesn't define my alcoholism. Neither champagne nor brake fluid nor I.W. Harper, which was my drink of choice. God, I love that guy standing there with all that elegance, but that tuck sold it. <laughs> oh, God, I love that. Yeah, That doesn't define it. It doesn't even define, it's not really defined really, I don't think, by how much of it I drank. I've met alcoholics who didn't drink a heck of a lot. They just went awfully goofy when they drank. You know, they, some like that. I've met some who drunk more. God knows I didn't think they made that much booze. I've sponsored some who drank an awful lot of booze. Don't think it has a lot to do with it. I don't think it's defined by how much trouble I got in. 
Now, certainly trouble is the middle name. It's an occupational hazard of alcoholism. Never met any alcoholics who didn't get in some kind of trouble. But I don't think that defines it. It's not defined by how many times I went to jail. I went to jail more times than I can remember, don't care to remember, simply because it's not important. It's not important. I've known alcoholics, I can't imagine it, but I've known alcoholics who never went to jail. Would you believe the majority of members of Alcoholics Anonymous have never been to jail? Ain't that something? God, I, I thought any self-respecting alcoholic would demand to go to jail. What? It's amazing to me. It's not defined by that. It's not defined with, well, a whole bunch of stuff. And why I left up that definition, it's not, not defined with whether I'm young or old. With whether I'm black, brown, yellow, or polka dot. Has nothing to do with that. Whether I'm smart or dumb, rich or poor, educated or stupid, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. That's why I like that definition. We alcoholics, men, we lost the ability to control our drinking. That's exactly what happened to me when I was 18 years old. Now, I didn't know it. I didn't understand it till I was sober a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous. But what happened to me was that I, I moved into a different dimension. When, when alcoholism became a reality in my life, I parted company with every other drinker in the world, except other alcoholics. My life was to never be the same till the day I die, that if I take a drink of anything with alcohol in it, I will absolutely be unable to predict my behavior. And that's what happened when I was 18. And from that point on, my life just took off like a, like a runaway train. It was just an absolutely bizarre kind of thing. And I'm going to sum it up. Really, I'd, I'd love to talk about it all day, but I, I'm going to sum it up with just kind of a general look at what was typical of my alcoholism. Yeah, my typical deal. But, you know, I was the kind of guy that always sort of had a homing instinct. I liked to hang around certain places. And I was the kind of guy that would want to go by and have a couple of drinks with the guys and then go on home and do something decent. But I, but, but, but almost always I would go by, have a couple of drinks with the guys and then either close the joint, wind up in a bootleg joint, wind up in jail, wake up in the, in some strange circumstance, never very pleasant. Never very pleasant. Wake up married. Very not pleasant at all. Sleeping in the middle of a U.S. highway. Literally sleeping in the middle of a high, uh, U.S. I don't think they hit me. I was just laying there. Draped across railroad tracks. In front of a freight train. Moving. <laughs> Fighting the two guys trying to get me off. Bizarre circumstances. Just... Thousands of them. God knows they're a litany in themselves. But what was characteristic was not the, the the peculiar circumstances, but every time that happened, every single time, my response would be essentially the same. I'd take a look around and look at the wreckage of the night before, and my response would be, well, you've done it again. You sorry devil. You've done it again. It was always a moral issue. And my response would basically be that the, the scene of the alcoholic, to put my head in my hands, and for God's sakes, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Not one single time 
did I respond by saying, you drink too much. Not one single time. Every time the response would be, you're no good. You have no discipline. You have no resistance. You have no character. You have no integrity. You're worthless. And that is literally what I believed until I was sober for a good while in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not one time did I name alcoholism as a problem. I had not any sense that the issue for me was that if I took one drink, that was inevitable. Didn't know that. And so that was the typical pattern. And my life became, you know, we use a term in Alcoholics Anonymous a lot that's called uh, geographic cures. And, and we all know what they mean. I, I really don't use that term much, much because, frankly, it's a little esoteric for, for what uh, for, for what my life became. You know, my life became, the best way I've ever found to describe it, a seemingly endless series of failures and new starts. Failures and new starts. And what I failed to see, I could see the pattern of my mobility, of course, but what I failed to see was that every time I failed and started over, I stepped down a notch. I settled for a little less and a little less and a little less until very quickly I wound up living a life that I would never have imagined living. In my wildest, most drunken Dreams I would have never imagined living. I wound up living up in the city of Flint, Michigan. One of my geographics was up there, and and uh, that's where I crashed and burned. I hit the uh, hit city of Flint, and uh, y'all close enough to be aware of it. It's not a. It is really not La Jolla, California. That it's, uh, <laughs> it's the grungiest place. It was uh, it was voted the worst city in the United States one time. I took a little perverse pride in that. I kind of helped destroy that place. (laughs) That's where I, that's where I hit in a city of a half million. I wound up unemployed, darn near unemployed. But last year that I drank, I pray to my God that I never forget because I, I lived basically on the, on the streets the last year that I lived. I'd come up for air every once in a while, grab a job, get some hole in the room in the house and, and uh, make a, a one more desperate effort and then crash again. And my most frequent address the last year that I drank was a place called the Rialto Theater. It wasn't because of like movies, it just happened to be the cheapest room in town. 35 cents you could get in out of the cold. And um, I never believed I would ever wind up in that kind of circumstance. I, I pray to, to my God that I never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of that. I never want to, don't want to for one second slip into the notion that my alcoholism was just some kind of a a nuisance behavior, you know, just some sort of a run of bad luck or, or any stuff like that. It was a devastating illness for this young guy. And I never want to forget that. I never want to forget the feeling of wandering the face of this earth with an ever-present sense of despair and hopelessness. Never want to forget the, that constant sense of dread and anxiety, of, of everything and nothing, you know, just omnipresent fear. I never want to forget the shame and humiliation, the total loss of self-respect, the dirt, the squalor. That 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 second rate became a way of life for me. I was sober for a good while before I could comfortably accept first class anything. It just became second nature to to be that way. Well, I don't want to forget any of that stuff. I want to. I don't want to forget, just like Jimmy's talking about, selling my life's blood five bucks a throw. You know, that's what my kind did. That's what I did. 
I don't want to forget hustling and robbing other drunks and hurting folks and, and stuff like that. I was not a criminal. I was li- a guy living in a jungle, and I survived like you survive in a jungle. I don't need to go back and make amends. I mean, that's the way of life. That was the enterprise there, was who is the fittest on a given day. And uh wasn't many days I was real fit. That uh I don't want to forget that. I don't want to forget playing the idiot in a bar so somebody buy me a drink. I don't want to forget the hustling. Well, on and on. That's the reality. That's what alcoholism is for me. Yeah, there's a there's a benefit to that. Benefit to that that I, that I'm well, I'm grateful for the experience. You know. And the benefit of that that I never planned on was that it gives you a great sense of fairness, I think, and, and so far I've welcomed hundreds of thousands of people to Alcoholics Anonymous. Never one that I could look down at. Isn't that important? Yeah. Well, it would be nice if I could tell you that um, that uh, one day I had enough of that and somebody found me or, or that I've, I've heard of Alcoholics Anonymous tried it, but it just didn't work that way. Uh, my my story was to um, to not end before it, it 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 involved the kind of tragedy that I know everybody in this room has no doubt feared, dreaded, maybe family members more than alcoholics. But but my God, no, never met an alcoholic. Excuse me, never met an alcoholic who hasn't lived through that kind of panic that comes from waking up in the morning and trying to take a look and, and put together what happened. Yeah. I was the kind of guy that I was, I was really not a nice guy, and I, I knew I was capable of anything. But like most, I never believed the, the kinds of things I, I feared most would ever happen. And uh, but one morning I woke up in jail in Flint, no novelty there. My God, that was my uh, my most second frequent, uh, second most frequent address. I woke up and assumed I was all for there for the same as always, either, either drunk or, or hustling or fighting or whatever. And it was great with the fact that the night before I've been driving somebody's car. I don't even know who, but I was driving somebody's car in the main street of the city, and it ran down and killed two people. In my reaction. I'm sure it was understandable. It was not to me at the time, but I'm looking back, I just simply could not take that in. I couldn't handle it. Now, brain's a funny thing. It, it protects itself. It only accepts what it can handle. It explains a lot of behavior to me. Well, and that was certainly mine. I, that's the only time I've ever been in jail and tried to get out. And then somebody at that jail found out I had family in North Carolina and, and contacted him. I didn't want out. I was afraid to get out. I was ashamed to get out. I couldn't face anybody, of course. And uh, and my folks came up there uh, after seventy. I was from July in July seventeenth to fifty six is, is when they came up and negotiated my release on bond, charged with manslaughter. I didn't know how to tell them I was afraid to get out, and I, and I got of course, but you know, of course, I drank. I didn't. I didn't think I would ever drink again. I, the guilt was too great. I just didn't think I could pick up a drink, but. Of course I did. A day and a half later, I was I just I, I gave in, and then I was gone. And for, for between July and November of '56, I drank literally like nobody I've ever seen. That's not some some perverted macho statement. I, I I've never met a drunk like me. Never have. Yeah, I held a drunk in my arms while he died. But even as he died, he was protesting that he wasn't like us. Yeah. 
I just gave up. And and it was, I mean, a wino could have diagnosed me. I, it was obvious what I was doing. I was trying to drink myself to death. My God. And uh, in November the 19th of 56 was actually the date of what I hoped was my last drink. And uh, didn't know it was going to be. I knew it was going to be for a long time because that day I was to be tried in uh, in uh, Genesee County Superior Court, charge of manslaughter. And I knew that, that when I went to that court, I would not be back. I knew that. I finished a bottle of gin, had about that much, went down, had my whatever belong as I had, a toothbrush, I think, and uh, and, and, and stood for the judge, sentenced to a max of 15 years in, uh, in the Michigan State Penitentiary. Now, I knew what that meant. You know, I, I was not a hothouse flower. I'd never been in a penitentiary, but I'd hustled around with a lot of guys who had. And I knew that when 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 I went there, I wasn't going on a picnic. I, I knew that was not good news, and uh, it's a lousy institution. This I don't guess any of them are very nice, but that was certainly a, not a nice one. They had six thousand guys in it when I walked in the next day. Some very fine guys in there. Some of them are my dear friends today, but also a liberal number of the most scroungy jokers that I have ever seen in my life. I mean. Sad excuses for human beings. Uh, just a, 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 a just a rough mixture of uh, folks that that couldn't be tolerated in the community, and, and so I didn't expect it to be a finishing school. And so I walked in, resigned to my fate. Never believed I would ever come out of there alive. Truly didn't, and did not care. And, and it wasn't callous, cynical feelings. I just wanted to disappear. I, it didn't matter. Yeah. So, little did I know that that would be the land of beginning again for this guy. I could not have believed it. But one day, a guy uh, interviewed me uh, that worked there, and he talked with me about my alcoholism. A lot of people had done that. And then he did something that nobody had ever done before. He, did, he exclaimed about my alcoholism, and then he, he said, uh, we have an AA group here, and I think you better go. And, and I'd never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of untruth that we get caught up in sometimes that nobody can help an alcoholic but another alcoholic. Now that may be true in the therapeutic sense, you know, of, of what we do that's importantly in that level of sharing. But my God, how many people can help? It's interesting, it's more than interesting, it's important to me. To recognize that I responded to the first invitation I've ever heard. And I've never had a drink since. And that guy didn't know anything about alcoholism. He was a rookie social worker doing hard time in the joint just like I was. But the first guy that pointed. And that's not novel. I sat in a meeting in North Carolina uh, several years ago. And I'd never heard this in a, in a meeting before or since. But the, the chairman asked to each of us to think back to the person who started the chain of events that led to our recovery. There were 22 people sitting in the room, and for two of us, it was a recovering alcoholic. For 20 of us, it was somebody like that social worker, or a mad wife, or an employer, or a judge, or on and on. This whole notion, well, anyway, could talk about that for a while, too, but... That really underlines the importance of public information and cooperation with public uh, uh, professional community, doesn't it? Because who brings alcoholics to Alcoholics Anonymous is not us. It's the folks who impact and, and interact with us. 
So this guy uh, told me about it. Didn't tell me much. He didn't know much. He just told me when the meeting was, and 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 I walked in. I didn't want to join. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. I was 24 years old. I really thought I was a superstar in the making who just never got the right break. Now that's really who I thought I was. As I walked into my first meeting, it was it was just about half size of this convention. There were 300 members in that group. One guy spoke to me. Had an officer on the door, Ivester, yes sir, sit down. <laughs> and I sat out. Thank God nobody hugged me. I, 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 I heard a lot of people talk about that first meeting and how great it felt for some alcoholic to hug him. I thought, good God. One of those hairy legged convicts would have laid a hand on me, I'd have laid him out, I tell you. <laughs> uh, but I sat down and listened to my first meeting and, and that was the first day of a brand new way of life. I didn't know it. Didn't know it. Sat there and listened to the meeting, and the man who spoke at that meeting became my first sponsor. His name was Shy Walker. What a marvelous man. Little short, relatively uneducated man that, uh, but a real giant in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not just in my life, but in a whole bunch of lives. A great fellow. Great fellow. Always be thankful for him. And and that started the process of, of what happened. You know, and what happened to me is that it's like that social worker stepping in and doing his thing. It's like somebody that started to say there is a solution for this thing, and I started to hear it. And shy, that guy who came in, thank God I didn't get some old bleeding deacon that was just mad at everybody in the world. Instead, I got a guy that that I never saw without seeing that magical gift of enthusiasm, magical gift, and how important that was because I didn't identify with that guy. He was as different from me as anybody I've ever met. But I never missed a single meeting the whole time I was in that institution. And for a good while, I went back to every meeting without anything like commitment or real desire or, or, or anything like that. I didn't consider myself a member of Alcoholics I was just a face sitting in a crowd. I, I, I tell you, that thing I was talking about in the beginning about self-centered isolation, it really isn't caused by alcohol in my case. And obviously, if it isn't caused by alcoholism, by alcohol, it's not going to be relieved by not drinking, is it? And what I found when I wound up in Alcoholics Anonymous was that I was as miserable and self-centered and isolated, sober as I'd ever been before, only worse. Only worse, because now it was loaded down with a mountain of guilt, a, a more severe isolation than I'd ever known. And Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll tell you, can be a miserable, lonely place. It can truly be. I guarantee you there have been some folks at this conference this weekend who have not felt the joy, who have not felt the sense of, of keen unity and belonging, who felt like they were watching a parade. And, and there were some things that, that, that changed that for me, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Yeah, some things... I guess got through. I, I guess the, the contagious spirit that Shy Walker conveyed in that first talk I heard gave me something to hang on to that brought me back like the moth to the flame. I couldn't have told anybody why I was going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I just did. And and th- that was an important thing. I, I'll tell you the things in terms of what happened that truly made a difference in my life. Yeah, One was the group I was in. I, you know, it was really interesting to me that the... Um, <laughs> Brain Damage Group. Is that really the name of that? 
<laughs> Jim, you're not in it. Now, boy, you look like a Baptist preacher here yesterday doing that kind of like <laughs> Praise God. Yeah. But, you know, groups stepped out of their comfort zone, started to sponsor this group, that one, and the Oak Street, whatever the other group. What's the other group that sponsored? What do you got? It? Bottom half. Bottom half. You almost have a committee naming groups up here. That's where. That ain't God's work, I tell you. The bottom half. Jesus. I belong to the primary purpose. I. I feel like a wimp belonging to something like that. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> a title ought to be descriptive of what it represents. I would <laughs> visit those groups sometimes, look them over. <laughs> That's great. But there's some going on because you had the guts to do this, and that uh, that's great. And I, I'm a I'm a great group man. I, I'm a I'm a great believer in home groups and strong, well structured, purposeful groups. That's what I believe in. I believe in groups that foster the solution. And I and I, I guess I I believe that so much because that was significant in what made a difference for me. The, the recovery group in Jackson Prison, even though it was in a maximum custody joint, was an excellent group of alcoholics anonymous. Excellent. And what I mean by that, that group understood the fifth tradition and carried it out extremely well. Yeah, frankly, that group was was more effective than probably 90% of the groups I see in this country today. And that's unfortunate, but it's just the way it is in my view. And I'll always be thankful for that group, that it wasn't one of those Mickey Mouse things that got together and did something no matter what, that it was a strong, purposeful group, did a great job of introducing new people to the program. And I'll always be grateful for that. Tell you, some of the finest meetings I've ever been to in my life were not only in that group, but they were when a half a dozen or eight or ten of us would get out on the yard and bunch up among 6,000 folks and have some of the finest, most important meetings that I've ever been to in my life. I'll always be thankful for that because it gave me that sound, no-nonsense, fundamental grounding and what this program's about. And it taught me something about that this is about getting well. Not about having a ball. It's about getting well. And I'll always be grateful. It's, it pulled me through some tough times. I'll always be grateful for the people who walked into that institution and literally stuck out the hand of hope. And how much that meant to me that somebody cared enough to come into that kind of an environment and just basically say, I'm like you, but I'm not like you anymore. And there's a way out. And just said, come on, go with us. I took them up on it. Always be grateful for that. I'll, I'll always be grateful that, let me kind of, kind of put it this way. I... I'm going to have time to talk about it a lot, but let me just see if I can do it in a, in a way that it means a lot to me. You know, there's a, you know, this program has a lot of power to it. 
And there's a place in the book where it's written in that that funny kind of italic stuff. There's a place in the book that talks about the devastating quality of this illness, and it says that we have that that frothy emotional appeal won't suffice, no matter whose. Not my mother, my wife, nobody's will suffice, including mine. Probably the emotional appeal won't be enough. Just sort of relishing the fellowship and feeling the warmth is about like taking a warm shower. It's great while it lasts, but it has no staying power. And we have to have what? A solution that has depth and weight. Depth and weight. You don't reverse a killer illness with frothy emotional appeal or just rah-rah sessions. And, you know, you, you hear stuff in this program that border on, well, they don't border on, they actually become cliches. And, and we say them so much that sometimes it seems to me it's almost like that chant that's, that we do sometimes at the end of a meeting. It's a, it's, it sort of fills a vacuum, but I'm not sure what it means. You know, it, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. And one of those, for example, that I just want to, want to talk about a little bit. Well, a whole lot, but I talk about it, condensed version. You know, what is it that takes it from that? To a guy who 41 years later is not only still sober, but is still very much alive, very much alive, who's very much involved in the business of living, who is so richly rewarded that it is absolutely beyond belief. What is it that makes it happen? Well, you know, obviously just not drinking doesn't make it happen, does it? Uh, so, you know, one of the things we hear, and I heard it here this weekend, that sobriety is not a destination, it's a journey, eh? Uh, what does that mean? You know, sobriety is not a destination, it's a journey. That this is a process, that it's a way of life. Yeah, there's a place that, that uh, I'm not a literature technician, there's just a few things that I kind of stick in, stick in my mind. And one of them, I think, really sums this up as beautifully as I've and as powerfully as I've ever heard it. It's in, of all places, the preface to the 12 and 12. It never had impact on me for a bunch of years. Uh, it probably did, but it didn't have the, the sort of galvanizing effect. And one day it hit me what that said. And there's a little place in there, and I, I can't say this exactly right, but I think you'll recognize it, and maybe somebody will help me. Keith, you can help me if I, if I lose it. <laughs> it. It says what this process is about, that, that, that brings us out of that into a new way of life, a new way to live. And, and it, what it says basically is that the steps, the, the, uh, the, our steps, the heart of our program, our recovery process, are a set of principles, a set of principles, spiritual in their nature, spiritual in their nature. And here's the key to me, that if practiced as a way of life, if practiced as a way of life, not read or wrote or done or studied or seminared or workshopped, <laughs> None of that. What does it say? If practiced. Yeah. If I want to be a, a good violin player, what, what's the guy said? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. 
If I want to learn to play golf, what do I do? I don't play once every five year joke. I go, I practice, practice, practice. If I want to become a solid, functioning, recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous, what do I do? I practice, practice, practice. The principles that are laid out in the steps. And I won't go what the principles are. You, if you're not comfortable with what you understand those principles, take a look at them. Yeah. Like just one, the principle of surrender. Yeah. The principle of surrender in the first step. Do I practice the principle of surrender in my relationship to alcohol? Do I recognize that I didn't stop drinking because I had enough? I didn't stop drinking because I had bad luck? I didn't stop drinking because I, I, I just willed it to be so? I didn't stop drinking because Alcoholics Anonymous looked like a good cause and I thought I would join. I'm not somebody who fights alcohol for one simple reason. I have surrendered at the core of my being. I'm not somebody who decided not to drink. I'm somebody who finally got it through his thick head. I can't drink. I can't drink. It's not an option for me. There was a tremendous battle in my life over that, but it's over, folks. It's over. I lost. <laughs> I lost. <laughs> and God, what a victory came from, from simply losing. Well, that's what I'm talking about. And I think that's what the book's talking about, that these principles are not just something to buzz about, but if practiced as a way of life. They'll do two things that are awfully, awfully important to me. One, they will, interesting word, they will expel the obsession to drink. Ain't that something? Only thing I knew about expelled, that's what they did to me in the fifth grade of school. <laughs> I knew expelled. And so I looked it up in the dictionary, and it really is an interesting word. Expel is to sort of push out. To push out. Interesting word. Yeah, if you look at the book, when you look at the, 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 the text about the obsession, it refers to it in two totally different kinds of, of lights. The first place when you get to it, it talks about it almost like it's a lobotomy, you know, that that the obsession has been removed, it's sort of plucked out like picking a chicken. Don't get too carried away with that. Because if you read just a little bit further, what does it say? That what we have in reality is a daily reprieve. Daily reprieve. Contingent on my spiritual condition. So it's important for me to understand that these principles will, in fact, expel the obsession to drink. But it didn't expel it too far. Sucker's sitting right over there, just waiting, just waiting. And all I have to do is let down on the practice of these principles. And Lord, look who's knocking at my door. See, that's what I have. And that's what these principles will give me, is to be free. And I'm a man free, not only of the obsession to drink, but of the, the bondage of self. The second thing it says in that, and it's just a little old paragraph, but I really think it says it all to, to be. And I can't say this, Keith, so you have to help me. That it'll do that, it'll expel obsession to drink, 
And then it will enable the sufferer, that's me, I think, enable the sufferer to find or develop. Anybody know exactly what that says? I don't want to misquote something. But maybe we all go look at the 12 12 preface sheet. But do take a look. It basically says enable the sufferer to find a life that's usefully whole. Usefully whole. Isn't that a promise, though? That I'm not going to have to spend the rest of my life hanging on by my fingernails. I'm not going to have to, to spend my life in anger dis, debate with alcohol. I'm not going to have to spend my life with a hole in the middle of my life where alcohol used to relieve the pain. These principles, if I practice them as a way of life, will enable me to find a life that's usefully whole. And I'm here to tell you that that ain't poetry, folks. That ain't poetry. That happened to me in a maximum custody penitentiary. When I started working these principles, I didn't exactly know what I was doing. I mean, we didn't do a whole lot of skillful stuff back then. We just kind of blundered together, you know. But I didn't know what I was doing. But first thing I knew, I started living a life that was free and usefully whole in a maximum custody penitentiary. First day of freedom I ever knew in that place, in my life was in that place. These principles work. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are. don't care what your situation is. These principles work. Yeah, it really, I'll just say one more thing about it, and then we've got to get out of jail. And uh, <laughs> we're already out in the ways that matter most. Yeah. It, it really looks to me like this. You have that sometimes we get frustrated because it is sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. And sometimes we get frustrated. We want it right now. Doesn't always work that way. It really looks to me like this, and I don't want to be discouraging, but so far, in one day short of 41 years, I have never consciously solved one single problem in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Not one. Now, Jim probably had. He's a little smarter and former Baptist and all that. But... <laughs> but I've never solved a problem. Not one time I sat in the meeting and said, by golly, I got it. Doesn't work that way. If you pay, this is the way it works in my mind. If some of you have seen a courthouse, might have been inside. On front of everyone, they've got the scales of justice, eh? You know, those, those things sitting there that sort of teeter how you weigh stuff in a civil society, I guess. Well, my life, you know, a good life is balanced like that. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, my skills were like that. You know, I was absolutely burdened with the defects of character that drove my life, that compelled me to be like I was. And it was totally out. You know what I'm talking about, with the hate and the fear and all of the things that, that drove me. I never have learned to solve those things. I've never learned to solve hate. I don't know the cure for hate. What I found is that these principles, if practiced as a way of life, teach me how to love for the first time. First time. And love and hate don't live together. And the first thing you know, one day I look around and I ain't mad at nobody. (laughs) I mean, I ain't mad at nobody. I'm not mad at anybody today. There ain't nobody living in my head at night. 
No. Now, I don't know when that happened. It's just sort of the evolution, the expelling thing, you know, that if practice is a way of life, good stuff happens. I not only become free of the obsession to drink, free of the bondage of self, but I become a free man in spirit, in spirit. Well, that's the thing that started to happen. And uh, it was just... uh, I don't know, the rest of it is just stuff, you know, that, that's what happened. You know, I did finally get out of jail. It, it doesn't take a genius to get out of jail. It just takes a lot of time. I, <laughs> it didn't take as long as I thought it would take, though. I was, you know, it's amazing what happens. Most alcohol, well, now not everybody, but most alcoholics, with Keith and I were talking about this yesterday, most of us, have a, 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 a sense of productivity. You know, most alcoholics don't need you to say giddy up to them. Some, sometimes you need to say, whoa. <laughs> now, and I got some guys that have been in dead stop since day one. I mean, not everybody has, has, has that drive. But most of us, when we get ourselves out of the way and we start living in the spirit a bit, come alive in, in the ways that matter. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I was, I was certainly of that type. I, you know, I got turned on to the business of living when I was in that joint and started living. Uh, somebody invented television while I was drunk. I woke up and there it was, Captain Kangaroo, all them guys. <laughs> and Michigan State University decided to send their campus to Jackson Prison. <laughs> God, all I had to do was pay for the books and a little tuition. And I became a freshman at Michigan State University when I was in a maximum custody penitentiary. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, God, they didn't let me go to class much, except there in the joint. <laughs> but what a difference, eh? And then finally, I, I, they did, uh, some good stuff happened. I was recommended for special parole out of that. I didn't make it, but I was recommended for special <laughs> parole. <laughs> and what was important to me was that only happens once in 10,000 cases. Now, I'll guarantee you they didn't do that on the strength of my resume. <laughs> no. Uh, they kept me in a maximum custody prison. Normally, they didn't keep guys as young as me with... With an unintentional crime, they didn't keep guys like me in a maximum joint. But my track record was so bad that they knew if they ever showed me daylight, I'd take it. They knew that, and they were probably right. But the same guy, a couple years later, they recommended for special parole, once in 10,000 cases. That's a testimony to alcoholics. A lot of us, not to Tom Ivester, because that's what they were looking at was a new guy. <laughs> that was as emerging. So anyway, they, 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 uh, three and a half years after I went in, they told me I could leave if I would agree to go to North Carolina. And that, that didn't seem like a great deal, but it was sure better than what I had. And, and so, of course, I, I, I said, man, yeah, let me go. And I hit the street. I, I guess with all the dreams that anybody has, I, but, but they were simple dreams. You know, you guys don't. If, they, if they're realistic, guys don't get into too much grandiosity in a place like that. All I really wanted to do was just find a place in this world that, that I could call home and be a part of, work, have a decent, honest way to make a living. That's all I wanted. I hit the ground and uh, 
got immediately active in the program, and, and I'll tell you, some remarkable things have happened in my life, and just because people get on my case, if I don't tell you, I'm, I'm going to just tell you a, a little bit about because I know that, that, you know, every story here doesn't have a happy ending. That's a fact. Most do. And some people are in a, in a point where they're wondering if they can regroup and get life going again. And, and you wonder what the future is. I know how much it meant to me when I would hear folks talk about the restoration process and, and getting into a life that had meaning and purpose. And, and, and so when I hit the street, that, that, that's all I was was a guy that had given a totally screwed up life to this simple program. All I wanted to do was find a place to just function. And when I hit the street, I started working in an institution. My group sponsored a prison group, and and so I I went over. I didn't know I could do that, but they let me go over there the second week I was out. I went over there and started doing that kind of service work from a different seat. I'd been doing it from the inside. God, it felt great to walk in there, and and, and particularly great to walk out. That was wonderful. It opened the door for me just like they meant it, you know. That was great. <laughs> two months later, I became outside sponsor of that group, and uh, what a great honor. Affirmation, I guess, is, is really what that is more than honor. It's affirmation. About the same time, my parole supervisor came to me one day and said, uh, said Tom, you're real active in this A thing. And, and I said, yes, sir. And it, it concerned me because I thought he was going to tell me to slow down. I knew I wouldn't. And uh, he said, wouldn't it help you if you could drive? And I said, yes, yes, sir, but I can't, as if he didn't know. And uh, he said, well, let me take a look. A couple weeks later, he called me, asked me to meet him at the Sears store uptown. And uh, I went up there, and I knew what it was for. Uh, it, it, his story is literally true in every sense. I walked up front of that Sears store. I could see all the way to the back. And my guy was standing back there with a man I didn't know. He turned out to be the driver's license agent, and, and so I walked back there, and he introduced me. And uh, the man, we chatted a bit, and the man handed me a driver's license. He didn't even ask me if I could drive. No test of any kind. I didn't even pay for it. Now, you know that's illegal. <laughs> but 40 years later, I'm still driving. I <laughs> Say, well, I've changed it a few times. I'm a state official now. And I, you know, that, I tell you what, I really believe it is that, and I, not just on my experience, but God, what I've seen in this program. When God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. I don't care what they are. Yeah, I'm a great believer in miracles. Yeah. But I'm also a very practical man, too. I'm, I'm a very practical fellow. Yeah, I, I take literally what it says in the book, that it's okay to have our head in the clouds, but keep those flat feet on the ground. <laughs> I practice that. Yeah, and I believe in miracles. Yeah, But I don't get too hepped up on the throw down your crutches events, because, I mean, I don't dismiss them, but I just don't, you know, I, when I think about my, my miracles, I think about them in a little more pragmatic sense that, that miracles to me are simply the place where preparation and opportunity come together. Preparation and opportunity. You know, if I'd been somebody that was trying to shyster the return of my driver's license, I would have probably got a DWI the next month. Yeah, I was prepared. And so the opportunity came. 
Yeah, I was uh, five months after I was out, I was elected DCM in my uh, in my district. I barely could spell DCM but, <laughs> before I went to Michigan State. Now they taught me how to spell that. And what a great, great sense of homecoming to be asked by the folks in 12 cities that I love most to be their trusted servant. That kind of thing just started to unfold, and, and that, that was a new way of life shaping for me. Two years after I was out sitting in my house one day, phone rang, guy from the state capitol called, and uh, normally when I got that kind of a call, it was bad news. And uh, this guy introduced himself. He had visited the AA group that I sponsored in that prison one time. And so I knew his name, and, and, I, but, and I met him, and he chatted a minute, and he said, Mr. Iverson, we're expanding the rehabilitation program in our prison system. We were wondering if you would accept a position in that. And uh, <laughs> I'd never been an ex-con hired anything like that, and I knew they weren't going to start with me, but they did. And uh, I was employed in, uh, in, in what I had just been subject to not too long before, a couple of years before. Unbelievable thing. It just couldn't happen, and lo and behold, it did. And that's, I'm still there. I, after all these years, I've been eligible for retirement a long time, but I can't figure out any reason to retire. I, <laughs> I, they pay me a, a gross sum of money to do this. And uh, what would I quit for? I mean, my, <laughs> it's stupid. And I'm doing what I love, love better than anything. And I, 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 uh, when I went in, I was in rehab and did that for several years. I, I, someday I'm going to stop and count up what it was. But it was several years, seven or eight or whatever. And one day the head of our prison system called me in and, and said, uh, Tom, I'd like for you to do an assignment for me. And I said, yes or what? And I th- really thought he wanted to speak to a civic club or something. And, and I said, uh, what? And he said, I'd like for you to take over an institution as warden. And I swear to God, I, <laughs> when, I, when I got up on off the floor, I said, boss, <laughs> very sincerely, I said, I'm not sure I want to do that. I mean, that, I mean, I guarantee you, when you sit in a, a, a cell dreaming in a maximum custody joint, that never makes the list of what. <laughs> there ain't no way. And uh, and I, I mean, it was shocking to me. And then finally, when I got over the shock, I, I said, I really don't know. Cause I like mud wrestling with the guys. I did. I didn't want to beat a man. And then I realized that I might be able to do something that uh, that might be my responsibility to do. So I did that. And for the next twenty years, that's what I did was run institutions, and it's a. It's kind of like the Peace Corps. It's the toughest job I've ever loved. I, I, uh, if I were still a warden, I would not be a warden because I would be retired. But that that is a very tough, frustrating job. But it but I had the great privilege of making a difference in some places, and I think that's. I guess that's what I was supposed to do. So <clears throat> anyway. I'll get to a point someday that I'll sort of give that up and go get an honest job or something. <laughs> or just quit. That, you know, that obviously is, is not what counts most. That's obviously very important to me and very significant, very meaningful to me. Of course. Now, I didn't just fall out of a Max Gussie cell. You know, I mentioned the definition of miracles, preparation, opportunity. I did bother to finish my education in correctional administration. I wasn't ambitious. I just got tired of being dumb. And so I finished my education. I wasn't particularly trying to do anything except just help some guys. And um, uh, 
And I also bother to outwork anybody I've ever met. You don't have to say giddy up to some alcoholics. They just sort of take off. And um, so it's, it's been, a, been a great deal. I, I tell you what's important. I, I think what I want to wrap up on. You know, we we uh, we get a. I mentioned to uh, to to a fellow named Lou last night about an experience. You know that we get rushing around and we have lots of stuff going on in our lives, and you wonder sometimes about what's important. And you know, the, a lot of what I've worried about is uh, is whether my extreme level of activity in Alcoholics Anonymous has been a different face of irresponsibility, or whether I had really done. The practice of these principles with my family to the, to the extent I have because, you know, I've got a family sitting home alone this weekend and most weekends of my life. And I've got a wife who takes care of the full <clears throat> responsibility for everything that goes on in our home every time I get on an airplane to go somewhere. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've always been concerned about those kinds of issues. And uh, I've been given to understand with absolutely no question about the value of practice of these principles. And I honestly believe, based on my life, that these principles will not cause injury. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Yeah, I always worried about that, of whether, you know, the, you can talk about quality time all you want, but plain old time is important. And when your kids have to ask you, now, what did you say your name was? You may be getting a little on the edge, but... But I've, I've been tremendously rewarded, and uh, I've got a, a, a wife now that will celebrate 30 years of continuous marriage in July, and I can't believe that. <laughs> it's unreal, unreal. A guy like me, I tell you, in this program, she'd never seen me drink. I was sober 11 years when we married, and uh, she'd never seen me drink. My, 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 my drink is like a soap opera to her. Uh, but she believes it. She's met enough credible witnesses from my past. She, she believes it. And she's a strong member of Al-Anon, a fine member. Tremendously supportive in what I do, how important that is. I got two kids that finished the university system down in North Carolina. I, I, for a while, like most of us, I weren't sure if they were going to Yale or jail, but they were... <laughs> Thank God they got through it, and, and my daughter graduated in psychology, and today she's working in uh, with guys with, uh, with uh, Down syndrome. Something else. Very proud of that girl. She was a real airhead. I, she really was an airhead. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, it's just great to watch her dealing with those guys. She brings them home and teaches me how to deal with them, too. I got <laughs> Ain't that great? And my son, uh, he majored in fraternity the first year in school. <laughs> and then he got over that and settled down and decided he wanted to go into medicine. And uh, and uh, so he's finished medical school and he's now in his, uh, starting his, in his third year of residency. And in the only specialty that I told him to stay away from, he's, he's an OBGYN. <laughs> so, so I told him he better get a law degree along with that. And... and uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, obviously, I, yeah, we're proud of those guys because you know, when you're sitting in a in a wherever you're sitting in darkness, those kinds of things don't seem in the cards, do they? We practice these principles as a way of life. What happens is an environment 
where folks can do well. That explains it's not brain power from their father for doggone sure, and I don't think from their mother. Very grateful for that. And that's what really matters. I, I didn't know that, what I started to say, but thought I'd explain a little bit. I, you, there are a lot of things important to me in my life, things that are genuine commitments in my life. And a while back I had a, if, if you fly enough, you're going to have some bad flights sometimes. And uh, I, I, I took off out of New Orleans one day and uh, we got up in the air and, uh, and a fire broke out in the, in the plane. And uh, you know, obviously, you don't need a you don't need a rocket scientist to explain to you you're in a lot of trouble when your plane's on fire. <laughs> and uh, I was the first guy on the plane to notice it. I, your your smell gets better when you're sober, you know. I, and I noticed it, and and a guy crossed the aisle from me, and I started talking because I thought it was done. I, I honest to God, thought it was done. People talk about your life going in front of your eyes. That didn't happen to me. You know what happened when I started to think that it was all over? That I, I, I first thought I had was the number of commitments that I'd made around the world. And I was thinking, geez, I wish I could let them know that, <laughs> that, that, that they go out to get somebody else. You know? and, ain't that strange that you'd think of that? And uh, I thought, well, they'll read about it. And, uh, then I, I thought about the family. And, and, uh, so when you get right down to it, and you really have to take a look at what counts, those are the things that count. It's not success or attainment or that kind of stuff. It's about powerful, important relationships. So this set of principles... <laughs> Practice as a way of life have made me a free man in every sense of the word. I got no unfinished business that I know about. And instead, I can function as a contributing guy. And what I was given in exchange for a broken and wasted life is the greatest adventure that I could possibly imagine. Thanks, guys.